0: This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English service. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing well, Matt. Thank you. So it's been all Myanmar for you this week.
1: Yes, it has. And I imagine the same in your shop. Myanmar has outstripped China, North Korea and other heavyweights in terms of
0: producing world news. And that's not a good thing, I think. So... I'm going to be focusing on what RFA has been learning from inside Myanmar, but you're looking at how other Southeast Asian nations have responded to events in Myanmar. Who are you speaking to?
1: I'm speaking to Kate Bedal, who heads up Binar News, RFA's sister organization that focuses on several countries different than the RFA countries, and they are the ones who have been forced to diplomatically respond to the crisis in Myanmar.
0: Okay, well, we'll look forward to that. But first, let's dig a little into what's been happening close to the action in the past week. The February 1st military coup has changed the complexion of the country's politics in short order. The Tatmadaw has brought democratic transition to a grinding halt, and it's arrested key leaders of the civilian government, including Aung San Suu Kyi. Despite fears of reprisals from the military, signs of popular dissent are growing. As we record this podcast on Friday, February the 5th, a campaign of peaceful civil disobedience is gathering steam across the country. It started with people banging pots and pans at night. Today, we've also seen public displays of dissent by government employees and some people in small numbers marching in the streets. To talk to us about what's happening and what this all might portend is Jormin Tun from RFA Burmese service. Welcome, Jormin Tun.
2: Thank you very much, Matt, for inviting me for this.
0: Okay. Busy times for you. Indeed. So tell me a little bit about the civil disobedience campaign in Myanmar. Can you sort of give us a picture of how people are showing their opposition to the military takeover?
2: Ordinary people in Myanmar are expressing their anti-coup desire by wearing their red ribbons on the employee uniforms, starting from health, employee doctors, and government hospitals, and then teachers from university and schools. Uh, Generally, starting from Mendeley and then Yango and large towns. And now it's across the country. They call it CDM, a civil disobedient movement.
0: I mean, you're talking about health workers. Are there people from other arms of the government service who are joining this campaign?
2: Yes, from the Ministry of Energy and Electricity, Ministry of Transportation and Central Bank. There's a lot of, across the ministries, uh, employees, they are showing the campaign, ribbon campaign. Large group photo uh, showing with the uh, sign that they don't accept the military government.
0: And these are from ministries that have actually been formally taken over by military appointees, is that right? Yes. So what about the wider population? How are they joining in this civil disobedience campaign?
2: The government employees are very obvious, but ordinary people in Myanmar are also expressing their anti-coup desire by doing other campaigns as well, including releasing red hydrogen balloons on the streets and the towns, wearing t shirts in public, changing social media profile pictures, and also showing their three fingers up and posting hashtag movements on Facebook, and also posting anti-coup posters on the street corners. And one popular and very loudest one is banging metal kitchenwares and pots. You can find those campaigns typing hashtag CDM across the social media, I mean Facebook.
0: I've seen some of the videos of the nighttime banging of the pots and pans in various cities across Myanmar. Is there any sort of Burmese tradition behind this?
2: Yes, it is an old Burmese tradition of driving either spirits out of a village or town at the nightfall. And and now it began a political expression to show their rejection against the military coup.
0: So you mentioned that some people in Myanmar are using a three-finger salute like from the Hunger Game. I know that we saw that being used in Thailand in the protests there against military involvement in politics. Basically, the three-finger salute symbolizes three political demands that had their origins back in the 1990s.
2: This 3 fingers demand, or salute, is originated in 1990s, where NLD leaders adopted that policy, which describes Su Lut Tui, which in, uh, in Burmese, number one is release Aung San Suu Kyi and political prisoners. Second is a uh, uh, Lut, which means uh, parliament, call the parliament and then the uh, tweet in uh, English is uh, dialogue. Now, some of the uh, protesters and CDM uh, campaigners are using these three fingers in order to show their support for these demands.
0: I mean, is this campaign of civil disobedience being organized by any particular party or person, or is it sort of spontaneous?
2: It is not organized by a party or a group, but. It was initiated largely by 88th generation student leader, Menko Nyes, nice, who has deceived a disobedient idea through the, uh, his social media videos. But it is hard to pinpoint where it was started, but on second day after the coup, it was spontaneously spread across the country.
0: Okay, and just to let people know if they're not familiar, The generation 88 people were involved in the 1988 democratic uprising against military rule and Ko nang spent many years in jail for his for his civil disobedience so chummington how are authorities responding to this civil disobedience campaign
2: uh the government in the first few days they don't know what to how to react these campaigns they didn't expect it will come this way so they have been showing their power by tanks running tanks and military trucks across the town every now and then. But people did not show up on the street. You know, they just showing up on the social media and doing these private campaigns then themselves at their homes, like Paul Banging's uh, campaign. And also, They mostly, in the past, government employees, they are very obedient. But now the government employees are younger generation, like 20s, 30s. They don't have experience like in 88s because they live in a race and relatively free society. So when they see injustice, when they see their leaders were detained and the military suddenly take over the control, They are very angry and they think they have to show something of their dissatisfaction against the uh, military. So now, even tonight, uh, a few hours ago, the authorities trying to crack down those campaigns by arresting leaders of that movement. For example, in Mon State, the dean of a high school where they held a civil disobedience campaign in the campus, they arrested her. But they cannot go every individual in the campaign yet. So they have to find a leader and get detained fast. So they're gonna doing this crackdown um, gradually I think in coming days.
0: So far we've just seen a few dozen arrests, is that right? Yes, correct. Perhaps the most well known step the Myanmar authorities or the military has taken in response to their fears about civil disobedience so far was ordering internet service providers to block Facebook, which, as we know, is very widely used in Myanmar. I mean, I've seen it described as a digital tea shop. It's sort of the place where people communicate and express themselves and share information. So how has that gone down in Myanmar? And how are people responding to Facebook being blocked? And how are they trying to get around that?
2: Already in the second day, they order the internet service providers, the mobile communication companies to shut down Facebook overnight. MPT, the uh, Myanmar Post and Telecom mobile service, they started cracking down on Facebook. And then the uh, other private carriers like Telenor, which was from Norway, they are slowly adhering the government order, but they sh- issue a statement. They were being told to close the Facebook down from their service, not in line with the international standards of human rights, but they have to follow the order. So they issued such a statement. Burmese people, Myanmar people are uh, sharing how to bypass those uh, blockage by BPN services proxy services in order to get into facebook and facebook messaging services so they're
0: using these virtual private network apps to basically bypass the blockage source their internet services from from ip addresses that are out, outside myanmar so i mean are people largely able to access facebook now
2: yes yeah, some people can do it stay but uh, some depth-savvy guys, even the uh, local citizens, they can get into RFA Burmese. Even when you check RFA Facebook webcaps, you can see thousands of people f- from Yangon and Mandalay, they are watching live for our show too.
0: Okay, so our audience has gone down, but it's still substantial because people are finding a way to get around it.
2: Yes, like 30% of our usual audience still exists.
0: Now, Jumin I think we saw some small-scale street protests today on Friday where did these happen and, and what do you think do you think that's very significant
2: yes it is significant because the um, the most odd the message from the uh, leading activists including an early leadership they are suggesting people not to go on the street but some young activists, including um, university students, they are coming out to the street in order to protest the, um, the coup. So in Mandalay, in, in Yangon, there were sparse, you know, street protests, but not many people. But in Naypyidaw, surprisingly, I saw dozens of people on the street protesting the government.
0: Okay. Now we've seen few reports of bloodshed or violence so far. Do you think that could change if people take to the streets?
2: People are very careful about street protests, and they don't want to be a into for the government to justify their uh, emergency order, you know, civilian unrest and uh, justification for their uh, power control.
0: Okay. So people are wary that the government could put its, uh, its thugs on the street to intimidate people, and they're also concerned that the street protests could give some justification for the military to crack down with violence. Let's talk a bit about your experience. I mean, how does this coup differ from past crackdowns by the military, like in 1988?
2: This is very different. This is 21st century now. People are very different. Generations are different. They had different approach to protest the government. In 88, people have no other choice. Just they come out, or come out to the street and protest in mass. Thousands and thousands of people coming out on the street. But now, the leaders, NRA leaders, as well as the uh, Aung San Suu Kyi herself and also 88 generation students, they knew they could all began a flagship on the street and it could give the uh, upper hand to the uh, military government. So they asked uh, their supporters to do the civil disobedience. In 88... I was Yan at that time, but what I witnessed was people all Yan and all come out on the street and protest. And then they were cracked down by the authority using force, like shooting down. But now, this coup, you have no people to shoot. If you want to shoot people, you have to shoot someone inside the apartments, uh, banging their kitchen wares and pots. You can do that unless there's a confrontation on the street. There's a no way they can shoot. The military has changed their tactics too. They, it's something a little bit more complicated and delicate issue to tackle the problems.
0: Okay. People have found different ways to protest and I guess the military has sort of adapted. So we're going to have to watch very closely what happens in the coming days. Jomin Tuun, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us.
2: My pleasure, thank you very much too.
1: Thank you, Matt and JominTun, for an update on the fast-moving events in Myanmar. What a difference a week makes. Now we turn to the international community, particularly Myanmar's neighbors, and how they have reacted to the political crisis there. The United Nations Security Council issued a press statement February 4th, expressing serious concern about the situation in Myanmar. The statement took three days and stopped short of condemning the military coup, and it was seen as a sign that Myanmar enjoys the backing of China in this crisis. Another organization that seems to be pulling its punches on Myanmar is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, known as ASEAN. Myanmar is one of the 10 members of this diverse group, which includes the monarchy of Brunei, the traditional communist dictatorships of Vietnam and Laos, as well as the young democracies of the Philippines and Indonesia, among others. For a word on the ASEAN response to the Myanmar coup and the factors behind it, I'm turning to Kate Bedal, founding managing editor of Banar News, a sister entity of RFA. Now, in our division of labor over Southeast Asia, RFA covers Myanmar, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, while Banar News covers the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, and also Bangladesh. Thank you, Kate, for making time for Ion Asia during this busy week.
3: Thanks, Paul. Great to be here.
1: Well, how would you characterize the ASEAN response to the coup on February 1st?
3: I would characterize the ASEAN response as tepid, but growing a bit bolder as the week has gone by. You know, on Monday, Brunei, which is currently the chair of ASEAN, issued the official response on behalf of the bloc, and it contained that typical ASEAN language, focusing on the importance of peace and stability, normalcy, and not much mention of democracy. And there was no outright condemnation of the coup by the bloc or any individual country in it, which is not really surprising given that ASEAN has that policy of non-interference, what's described as you know, the internal matters of each country. As far as the individual nations in the Benar coverage zone, there was a range of responses. You had individual government officials in the Thailand and the Philippines calling the coup an internal matter, kind of language you would hear from China. And Indonesia said it was deeply concerned by the events in Myanmar. But just today, the leaders of Malaysia and Indonesia called for a special meeting uh, by the ASEAN Bloc on the coup. The Malaysian prime minister used quite strong language for these countries, calling the coup a step backward for democracy and a potential threat to regional security. So let's see if they can make it happen, make this meeting happen, or really impact the situation in Myanmar in any way. You know, ASEAN has been totally unable to solve or even impact serious regional problems like transboundary haze or the persecution of the Rohingya. And it's not really what ASEAN is about, either, since it operates by consensus. But interestingly, the spokesman for the Indonesian Foreign Ministry said this week that Indonesia was trying to forge a common stance on Myanmar at ASEAN. He didn't elaborate, but we'll see where this goes.
1: Well, thanks for that uh, tour of the horizon. Behind some of the reticence and caution in these countries is probably the state of play for democracy and civil liberties in the countries themselves. On RFA's beat, we have Vietnam and Laos, which are stolid Leninist party states with uh, state-run media and no dissent. Cambodia has been run by the same autocrat for 35 years now, and now there's Myanmar's new junta. What's it like in your side of Southeast Asia?
3: Well, all four Southeast Asian countries that Benar covers are ostensibly democracies. But there's a huge range in terms of how free and open they are. Um, in the Philippines, it's grown closer to China under President Rodrigo Duterte. And there's opposition figures in jail. The media has been targeted. And Duterte himself has waged this anti-drugs war that killed, has killed at least 8,000 people. And that's by official count. Human rights groups say it's many thousands more. In Thailand, of course, the current prime minister led a coup in 2014 that overthrew an elected government. He then changed the electoral laws and rewrote the constitution in a way that enabled him to be re-elected, or actually to be elected, in 2019. And there's extensive use of the criminal code against political rivals and pro-democracy activists in Thailand. Malaysia, Malaysia currently has an unelected prime minister after the previous government collapsed right before the pandemic began. And that unelected government has convinced the nation's king to declare a state of emergency, ostensibly to curb coronavirus. But under this state of emergency, parliament cannot meet and elections cannot be held. And then there's Indonesia, which remains really the most healthy democracy with a directly elected civilian president in his second term currently. But some analysts say that even in Indonesia, there's been an erosion of democracy with the military regaining a role in domestic affairs and deteriorating freedom of expression and the like.
1: Well, it doesn't seem like the region has a ton of advice to offer, but Indonesia has played the role of a mentor to the generals in Myanmar in the past. And a lot of it draws from its own experience of sending the generals back into the barracks and it was a signature policy of General Yudayono a decade or so ago. What's the, uh, the latest as far as Indonesia? You mentioned some diplomacy, but what else can they possibly do as their... if they're a special interlocutor with the generals in Nepita?
3: The current president, Joko Widodo, has been much less interested than his predecessor in Indonesia's role on the international stage. He's mostly been focused on domestic uh, policy, uh, but there have been calls for Indonesia now to resume its role as sort of a regional role model for democracy. As you know, Indonesia emerged from its own long period of military rule in 1998, and it's had five presidents since then, only one of them a military figure. And that one president is Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, who you mentioned. He was quite involved in trying to mentor Myanmar and doing it in a way that was not hectoring or lecturing, just recently in the Jakarta Post, actually on the eve of the coup, there was a call in an editorial to make him a mentor to Myanmar. So we'll, we'll watch that.
1: That's quite interesting. There's a lot about the Myanmar coup that brings about a feeling of deja vu. And that, to me, would include uh, SBY's uh, attempts to, to do something back when they were still under military control. Myanmar is also a troublesome neighbor to Bangladesh, which is not a member of ASEAN, but does share a border on the Bay of Bengal with Myanmar. Myanmar. What's the fallout so far that you can see from Bangladesh looking across the border at Myanmar and its coup?
2: Of
3: course, calling it a troublesome neighbor is sort of the understatement of the year, of course, because Bangladesh is home to 1 million uh, Rohingya refugees who fled Myanmar, including 750,000 in 2017. And it's really the country most impacted by governance and human rights situation inside of Myanmar. There have been repatriation talks underway since 2017, mediated by China, but there have been no results. Nobody has been repatriated or only a handful of people. And of course, the Tatmadaw was the force whose scorched earth crackdown sent hundreds of thousands of Rohingya into Bangladesh after horrible crimes and violence. And Aung San Suu Kyi is the one who defended this military campaign at the ICC at The Hague in 2019. So either scenario was dark for the Rohingya. And in addition to that, Myanmar has suffered no international consequences. It has also weathered international criticism of its campaign against the Rohingya without making any changes to conditions for Rohingya inside the country. Despite all of that, the Bangladesh foreign minister on Monday said he thought repatriation talks could continue whoever is in government. But I think that for the Rohingya, the sense of hopelessness is going to grow following this coup and with good reason.
1: Well, it sounds like those people may never get home, which is a very sad statement and sort of collateral damage to the military push in the Capitol earlier this week. Thanks again, Kate, for making time for us. We're very grateful for all of the strong reporting that Bernard News shares with Radio Free Asia. And we look forward to continuing to collaborate on these
0: cross-border crises.
3: We do, too. Thank you, Paul.
0: Thanks, Paul and Kate. It does seem like Myanmar is destined to slip back into prior status, the status it occupied for so long during its previous decades under military rule. You know, your conversation reminds me that for about 15 years after it was admitted into ASEAN, Myanmar was something of a diplomatic millstone around the Southeast Asian bloc's neck. It kind of complicated as in engagement with the West, but you know I don't know if that'll happen this time, as as you noted during your conversation, democracy is definitely on the back foot in Southeast Asia.
1: Well, indeed, and as Kate pointed out, the responses have been tepid at the national level, although disparate actors within these countries have spoken up.
0: Well, we'll have to watch and see if that meeting Indonesia and Malaysia are proposing for ASEAN to discuss the Burma crisis will take place or not. In the meantime, please join us next week for another sampling of RFA's coverage. Until then, you can visit our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are at that site or on other platforms like Spotify and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you've any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. That's E-O-A. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia alongside Paul Eckert. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.